Thank you, Ryan and praise team. You'll open your Bibles to John's first epistle, chapter 4. Again, we're not in the Gospel of John, we're in 1 John, which is later in the Bible, almost right at the end. I'm going to preach this morning on the passage that our Honduras team was our theme passage. Matt Zell picked it. It was our theme passage that we studied before we went. It was the passage we studied each night during our group devotion times as we took it each night verse by verse, talking about the verse, what God was trying to tell us, and how we saw it during the day. And it's a great passage. Um, let me uh, go ahead and read it to us and then talk about it. So 1 John chapter 4, starting verse 7. I'm only going to preach from 7 through 12, but I want to give you the, the rest, 7 through 21, just so you get the whole context here of what God, the Holy Spirit, is trying to tell us. Hear God's word, and then I'll pray for us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And in this love, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because, he, because as he is, so also are we in this world. For there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And the commandment we have from him, that is Jesus Christ, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here is the reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word reveals Christ to us. Help us to see him and to know him through your word. We pray in his saving name. Amen. This is a glorious passage that we just read because it tells us 
something that we need to hear. That God loves you. God loves you. And then two, so love one another. So love one another. God loves you, so love one another. These were the words of Jesus Christ during his ministry on this earth. The Gospel of John, not 1 John, but the Gospel of John, John's account of the life of Jesus. Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So here in 1 John, John's epistle to the church and to us, is that this is the teaching of Christ that we are to receive. And this is the command that John returns to again and again in this letter. The 16th century theologian William Tyndale said about this passage in 1 John, John singeth his old song again. Today we would say that this is John's jam. He loves talking about God's love. Why does God purpose that we hear this again and again in his word? Probably because we need to hear it. We need to hear both things. We need to hear that God loves us, and we need to be reminded to love one another. Because when we sin, we forget that God's love us. Sometimes we're tempted to forget that God loves us. We say, how could he love me? We're tempted to cover ourselves in shame and run away from God as Adam and Eve did. But God's word comes back to us. And in his mercy, his grace covers us as his word reminds the Christian that God loves you. So go love one another. The Holy Spirit is pounding on this message in this passage where in these 7 through 12, John uses the word love or beloved 16 times in only six verses. God is trying to teach us that love is the essence of God's nature. And if we are in Christ and his spirit abides in us, it should become more and more the essence of our nature. So let's look at these things too in turn. First, that God loves us, and then we'll look at, so love one another. If you are a follower of God the Son, Jesus Christ, then God the Father loves you. This verse tells us why, because God is love, it's the core, it's the essence of his nature. The Apostle John in this letter reveals two aspects that are the essence of his nature. In chapter 1, he tells us that God is light. And then he tells us in chapter 4 that God is love. Both must be understood with reference to the other. Now, what does it mean that God is light? It means that he is, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, God is holy, holy, holy. He's perfectly righteous, without any sin. But if that's all he was, then we would be left in our sin, deserving of our punishment for breaking his laws and rebelling against his reign on this earth. But God is love. What does it mean that God is love? Here in this morning's passage, God does not leave us with some vague idea of love. And he doesn't leave us with this abstract philosophical concept or love as a feeling. 
Instead, he tells us that, quote, the love of God was made manifest among us. The Greek word here for manifest, phanerao, means that God reveals. He makes visible. He exposes publicly. God revealed his love for us in Jesus Christ. You see, the world looks at Jesus, and it sees a first century religious leader who led a political uprising and was killed, executed by the Roman authorities. But here in this passage, we see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, revealed to be the propitiation for our sins. The NIV, the atoning sacrifice, the man who absorbed God's wrath and God's punishment for the sins of those who put their faith in him so that they might absorb God's favor that the Son deserved for his perfect and righteous life. He took our place, and we took his. In the Old Testament sacrificial system designed by God, the high priest would take the sins of the nation of Israel and he would put them on a goat. And the goat would be sacrificed to God to remove the sins of Israel. All of those sacrifices in the tabernacle, all of those sacrifices in the temple, were pointing forward in time to what Christ was going to do on the cross, to be sacrificed to God the Father to remove the sins of Israel in the past and to remove the sins of the church that would come in the future. Why was all this necessary? Because God loved you and he wants to be in a relationship with you. But your sin was separating you from him, so he sent his son to take your sin and to give you his righteousness in exchange if you will receive it. I think you'll see God's love is a sacrificial love. God's love for the Christian cost him. It cost him his son. John, the Gospel of John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish as we deserve, but have eternal life. So it cost God the Father. His, the love of God also cost God the Son. The Son who, who said this, and again in the Gospel of John, greater love has no man than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus' love for you cost him. It cost him his life. It cost him suffering. You see, God's love is not a feeling. It's an action. It's a sacrificial action that we see in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he purchased our adoption as sons and daughters of God. We've already seen this in verses earlier from Galatians. God's word says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
Now in 1 John, John is telling us again, see what kind of love, this adoption comes from love, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. Christian, are you and I able to appreciate this status change? From sinner who is estranged from God by our sin to becoming his adopted children who are able to enter into his kingdom and eat at his table now and for an eternity. We can't be proud of this. It's not something we did. It's not something we deserve. It is something we were given. Verse 10 of our message from this morning in 1 John says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God is the first mover. Love moved towards the object of his love. The object was sinful. The object loved the world. The object loved itself. Unable to love God first. But then God's love comes. It comes to abide in the Christian. It transforms the Christian into somebody who's able to turn away from the world, to turn away from love of self, and able to turn to love God and to love one another. Which brings us to our second point. The second thing that the Apostle John is trying to teach us in this letter, God loves you, so go love one another. This is the point of our passage. It's really the point of John's entire letter here. Because this is the third time John's talked about it just in this letter, where he spent more than a paragraph telling the church to go love one another. Earlier in chapter 2, John said this, Whoever says he is in the light and hates, hate, the opposite of love, hates his brother is still in darkness, not in the light. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That was chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, John goes into it deeper. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother, murder being the result of hate, hate being the opposite of love, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life, lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word or talk. Let us, not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Do you see any themes in that passage about the commandment to love? I see him stating it as the essence of the Christian faith. In verse 23, that we believe in Jesus Christ as God, God the Son, and that that belief then bear the essential fruit, the essential evidence 
that we believe in, that we go love one another. That verse, verse 23, I'm sorry, it's too small, y'all can't read it. (laughs) Verse 23 teaches that the Christian will not believe in Christ and not bear the fruit of love for others. A Christian will not believe in Christ and hate and murder others. Their heart has not been transformed. And on the flip side, we can't just love outside of Christ and expect to be saved, to expect to be in a saved relationship with him where he will spare us his judgment unless we surrender to Christ. Now, that, that begs the question, can non-Christians love? Absolutely. All people are created in the image of God. All bear his image, and his image is love. God is love. It's his nature. And it's part of the nature that he gives all people. He's given them relationships in which they may manifest or give evidence of that nature. Relationships where they give love and receive love. He's given all people marriage where a husband and and wife can love each other. He's given many people children as parents give love to the children and children return love to the parents. There are many ways in which the world shows that they're in the image of God and and gives love. But salvation is only in Jesus Christ, our text is telling us. And that salvation, when we say we have faith in Jesus Christ, it will bear the fruit of love that is consistent with loving Jesus Christ and his love for other people. So in this morning's passage, John gives us this command three more times, the one we're looking at this morning, John 4, 7 through 12, He gives us this command to love one another three more times. In verse 7, he said, Beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then in verse 12, If we love one another, God's love abides in us and is perfected. I want to say this about the command. Because my fear is that some will hear a new legalism. That the Apostle John is giving us another commandment that the Apostle John is putting another rock in my pack that I'm going to have to carry around and weigh me down for the rest of my life. That is not the gospel message that the Apostle John is sending. The gospel message is, if you have surrendered your life to Christ and made him your Lord, the power that raised him from death to life has raised you from spiritual death to spiritual life, and has given you the power and the strength to fulfill these commands. You you, you can think of that commandment as another rock in your pack, but it's a pack that the Holy Spirit not only gives you the strength to carry, but the desire to carry for other people. That's the gospel message. So knowing the power that God gives us to love one another... How should we love one another? Well, there are many examples in the Bible. I'm going to look at two that our team looked at while we were in Honduras. The first one is that great love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, which gives us practical examples. This is what God's love looks like and what he's changing the Christian's love to look like. And then we'll look at the passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan that our team spent a lot of time talking about. 
So let's briefly look at 1 Corinthians 13. It's a practical picture of what love is. We've already read it, but let's read it one more time and let it really sink in. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful or rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, endures all things, and my favorite, love never ends. All these are pictures of Christ's love for us and what he's changing our love into. And, and love never ends really is my favorite because when the Christian goes through dry seasons, as we do, when we go into trials, as we will, we're tempted to look at our circumstances and we're tempted not to listen to the gospel message anymore, but to think maybe God's love for me has stopped. Maybe it's on pause. But God's word comes and says that God's love never ends. God's love abides in us. It abides in us even when the boat looks like it's going to be swamped by the storm. It abides in us when we go into the hospital. It abides in us when we lose our job. It abides in us when our marriage gets hard. It abides in us when our children are difficult. It abides in us when we can't have children. It's often during these trials, though, where we really see God's love manifested for us. In many ways, but appropriate for our text this morning, when our brothers and sisters in the church come to love us, come to pray with us, come to minister to us, and come to meet our needs. So let's look at the second example of love from Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is one we spent a lot of time. Matt Zell picked it out also. Um, we, we, each of the times that we taught at Pastor Gustavo's church and we taught in Comiagua at Matt and Ellen's church, we taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. Juan primarily taught it, taught it and uh, he did a great job. He would speak to them in Spanish. Teens, quite often, I think of the example of when he, we were uh, preaching or teaching the uh, teens going through a GED program, preparation program to take the GED test. Juan was teaching them the, uh, about the parable of Good Samaritan. He would read it to them in Spanish and then ask them questions. And they were responding to him. They were answering his questions. And Matt and I were thinking, Matt, Zell, they wouldn't be answering our questions. They would not be doing this for him or me. But Juan really had a way to bring it out. And so we spent a lot of time talking about the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan, which we've already read, Jesus affirms the lawyer's answer that the summation of, his law, of the law is to love your God and to love your neighbor. And the lawyer asks the question that maybe some of us ask when we read 1 John. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? You're giving me this commandment, Jesus. Who am I supposed to love? Because John keeps telling us to love one another. Who's the another? Because he's writing this letter to the church. Is this for the church? Are we supposed to love one another? Are we supposed to love the people in this room? People who belong to this church? Maybe the church writ large? Who, are you? who is my neighbor? Who is the another? Well, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells us. He said there was a man 
going from Jerusalem to Jericho, who was attacked by robbers, as we've heard earlier. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. And then they ran away, leaving him half dead. A priest and a Levite, as, as Pastor Bale told us, saw the naked, half-dead man. And they not only ignored him, they crossed the street to get away from him. And it was a Samaritan. Not these religious officials. It was the Samaritan who took pity on him, a feeling, and then bandaged his wounds, poured his medicine on him, and carried him to an inn on his donkey where he paid for somebody to care for him. You see, Jesus is giving us a practical example of what our love should look like. And he's saying it should cost us. The Samaritan's love cost him. It cost him money and resources. He had to pour his own medicine on this guy that was saved for him. He had to spend money at the end to care for this guy and even obligated himself to some unknown bill that he would come back and pay later after the guy had recovered. It cost him time and convenience. It took a lot of time to stop his trip, to care for this guy, and then it was inconvenient. He put the guy on his donkey that he'd been riding on for this trip, and he thought he was going to ride on for the whole trip. He put this guy on the donkey, and now he's walking alongside that donkey on the dusty streets of Israel, or roads. And it also cost him his comfort. He had to approach that beaten man lying naked and half dead, bandage his probably bloody wounds, and then put him on his donkey and walk with him. Loving one another is a messy business. It's sometimes a bloody business. And it's definitely inconvenient. To my plans for the day, for my plans for the week, but that is the example that Christ is trying to show me. Jesus wants us to see that sacrificial love will sometimes be costly, just as his love for me was costly. So Jesus, in this parable, gives us a picture of love, but he also tells us who we are to love. Who is the neighbor? Who is the another? And Jesus is showing his Jewish audience that sacrificial love transcends nationality, it transcends race, and it transcends religious boundaries. And he was admonishing the Jewish culture for failing to recognize that. Don't take my word for it. James Montgomery Boyce, the longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, wrote this. Christ's point is that we, is that our love must transcend nationality, race, and religion. Boyce goes on to say that we have a first obligation to our family. We have an additional obligation to our church, to our brothers and sisters in the church. And then he says this, but that does not relieve us of our obligation to care for the needy ones in general. At the point of need, we must be moved by the fact that the one involved is a creature made in the image of God, regardless of his profession of faith, and not by whether the member, the person, qualifies as a member of our particular group. 
Now, how do Boyce and others arrive at this conclusion? Well, it goes back 750 years before Christ, when the Assyrians conquered, the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and carried most of the Jewish population away into Assyria, leaving behind some Jewish citizens or Jewish people were left behind, and those people intermarried with the Assyrian conquerors, with the Assyrian colonists who came to colonize the area. Well, later when the exile was over and the Jewish people were returned from Assyria, from Babylon, and from Persia, they came and they saw these Samaritans, people who had intermarried and had mixed blood in their eyes, and they despised them. They cast them out of their area into their own area to live in. They cast them out of the temple. The Samaritans had to go build their own temple so they could worship God. And they even developed their own Torah. As it had the same books, but it, had, it started to develop variations than the Torah used in the Jewish synagogues and temple. So why was it important for Jesus to make this point? Because Jesus is trying to show us that he was sent into the world to save people from all the nations. And then to bind them together into these things called churches, where he's creating new households of God, Ephesians 2. We see the teaching of today's passage, that we are sharing also God's love for these people with them. Here's one example. We poured a concrete floor for a widow in uh, Pastor Gustavo's church, Pastor Gustavo, who many of you know and, 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 and love. Before we started our work pouring a floor for this woman in two of her rooms, he gathered us together in one of those rooms that had a dirt floor. Pastor Gustavo, I think there were about 10 of us men, seven, six from Shady Grove and three or four from his church. He gathered us together. He brought the widow and her grandson was with her, brought them into the room. And, and he said this. He told us that this woman was a faithful woman in the church. She was faithful to Christ. She was faithful to the church. And she was faithful in prayer. And that she had been praying that God would give her a concrete floor. She'd been praying this prayer long before Shady Grove announced that there was going to be a mission trip to Honduras. She prayed this prayer long before Matt and Ellen Zell decided that one of our projects was going to be to pour a floor for somebody. And she prayed that prayer long before Pastor Gustavo matched up her need for a floor and our desire to pour a floor You know, there have not been too many times where I've seen something happen and say, God just answered somebody's prayer and showed her that he loves her. We saw it and we felt God's love for her. That the God of this world took six or seven men and six or women from Another country brought them hundreds, maybe a thousand miles, to her house, to this widow, poor widow's house, to pour a floor from her. We felt it, and we saw his love for her. Y'all, God is real. He is real. We saw it, and we felt it. John Stott, let me 
put up verse 12, the last verse of the passage. Let me read it and then use John Stott to explain it. John says this, no one has ever seen God. That's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. It's still true today. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's love abides in us and his love is perfected. The NIV says his love is completed in us. What does this mean? John Stott explains it this way, and I think he's right. He says, no one has ever seen God. How then can he be known? Here to our astonishment, a little bit to our confusion, the Apostle John goes on to say, if we love one each other, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. That is, here he goes, the unseen God who revealed himself in his son now reveals himself in his people if and when, if and when they love one another. God's love is seen in their love because their love is, where does it come from? It's imparted to them by the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. The widow had never seen God. We've never seen God, but we know he's real because we saw his love carried out inexplicably before our eyes, and we felt it. Let me conclude by speaking to anyone who maybe isn't buying this. Maybe you're hearing this And you're not convinced that God is love, that God is a loving God. And maybe you're having doubts about Jesus and who he says he is and what he's teaching us. Let me say this. We live, you and I know, we live in a consumer society. And that almost everyone you and I know is pursuing wealth and pursuing things to some degree, many to a great degree. But they aren't finding what they expect to find. They aren't finding satisfaction. They aren't finding their peace and shalom in these things that they were hoping for. They think that next promotion is going to make, they will finally arrive and they will finally be good. But then they get it. And they get the money that comes with it but they aren't satisfied, and they see there's another promotion that they have to go get. Or maybe they think, if I move to that nicer house in that nicer neighborhood, then finally I'll have peace. But then they get there, and they realize they're now around people who are more wealthy than they are, who have actually nicer homes in this neighborhood than I have, and I still have this emptiness. I still want more. Our culture knows that there's an emptiness there, but can't stop pursuing it. Every Christmas, we hear people in our culture say, Christian and non-Christian, repeat this, that it's better to give than to receive, as if it's a cultural maxim, as if they don't know where it comes from. What they mean is that we do feel a satisfaction in giving sacrificially and loving other people. The world knows this to be true, even though it runs totally counter to a belief and faith in Darwinian macroevolution, which teaches the survival of the fittest and had no room for charity for over a century until people said, you know, this thing, altruism, it's out there. We got to deal with it. We got to fold it in and try to develop a reason that people show altruism and charity to others. 
Our culture will nod and agree, but it continues to consume goods, and it continues to amass wealth faster than it gives because it can't change its heart, even though it can acknowledge a growing emptiness. The New York Times published an article a few years ago which reports on research that gives evidence of all this that we're saying we see. It, it said this, the adage that money cannot buy happiness may be familiar, but it's easily forgotten in a consumer society. A much more persistent and seductive message is beamed from every television screen. Contentment is available for the price of this car, that computer, a little more getting and spending. Y'all, this is New York Times, okay, this is not. <laughs> Over the last few years, however, psychological researchers have been amassing an impressive body of data suggesting that satisfaction simply is not for sale. Not only does having more things prove to be unfulfilling, but people for whom affluence is a priority in life tend to experience an unusual degree of anxiety and depression, as well as a lower overall well-being. Likewise, those who would like nothing more than to be famous or attractive do not fare as well, psychologically speaking, as those who primarily want to develop close relationships, become more self-aware, or contribute to the community. See, our culture knows this, our culture has evidence and data right before its eyes that our greed and our pursuit of emptiness is detrimental to our health, our physical health and our mental health. But we're unable to change when we're spiritually dead. But Christ's love exists to change hearts that are spiritually dead and make them alive. So, what I would say to you is that our culture knows this to be true because it is God's truth. It is what Jesus is teaching. It is what the Apostle John is telling us. We feel his love when we sacrificially give to one another. And when we surrender our hearts to Jesus, his love comes to abide in us, and his resurrection power raises our hearts to new life. Jesus transfers us, transforms us, into a people who desire to love sacrificially, starts to increase, and our desire to consume and hoard starts to decrease. Think about that. Whose side do we want to be on? Do we want to be on the side of the world the world side that consumes and hoards and takes? Or do we want to be on the side of Jesus and his church that wants to love you? This church wants to love you and to know you if you will receive it. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you came to save us. Send your spirit to abide in us as we surrender to you. Change our hearts from dead hearts to living hearts and cause us to go love one another so that we may know your abiding love and see your abiding love reach its perfection and completion as, as it's reproduced 
as your love reaches its purpose in finding someone else. We pray in your saving name. Amen.